All right, guys, it's time for the next Level Guy Show, a men's interview, interest, and improvement-focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats, covering all aspects of their story, from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. And today's guest is Dr. Kelly Sturrett. Dr. Kelly Sturrett is a coach, physical therapist, two-time New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling author, speaker and co-founder of The Ready State, the world's most comprehensive collection of guided movement, mechanics and mobility instructional videos which have gone on to revolutionise the field of performance therapy and self-care. His clients include professional athletes in all major sports, including the National Football League, National Basketball Association, National Hockey League and Major League Baseball, Olympic gold medalists, Tour de France cyclists, world and national record-holding Olympic lifting and power athletes, CrossFit game medalists, ballet dancers, military personnel and competitive age division athletes. Kelly is the author of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestsellers McCamina Sapo Leopard and Ready to Run. He's also the co-author with his wife Juliet of the Wall Street Journal bestseller Deskbound. His latest book, Waterman 2.0, offers water sport athletes a comprehensive guide to optimise movement and pain-free performance. Kelly and his work have been featured on 60 Minutes, The View, The Joe Rogan Experience, CBS Sports, Outside Magazine, Men's Health, Men's Journal, and dozens of other podcasts, magazines and books, including Tim Ferriss's The 4-Hour Body and Tools of Titan. On top of co-founding The Ready State, Kelly and Juliet also started San Francisco CrossFit and Stand Up Kids Together, which is a non-profit dedicating to combating kids' sedentary lifestyles by bringing standing and moving desks to low-income public schools. To date, Stand Up Kids has converted 95,000 kids from sitting to standing. The Ready State Virtual Mobility Coach provides user-guided mobilisation videos customised for your body and lifestyle including a personal pain prescription to fix your aches and stiffness, guided pre- and post-exercise mobilizations tailored for your training and sports schedule, and mobilizations for your off days to maintain your range of motion and reduce your risk of injury. K-Star likes to spend time with his wife, Juliet, and two daughters, Georgia and Caroline. He also loves to mountain bike, paddle and sauna. And while Kelly claims to only tolerate the ice bath, according to Juliet, yeah, she likes that too. And now, let's get to the interview. Well, thank you so much for coming on. You're one of the bucket list guests I've always wanted to have on this show. But for people who maybe don't recognize you, I would identify you as a thought leader, mobility and movement, and a very handsome guy. What would you say if somebody asked you who you were? How do you define yourself? Besides the really important roles in society, my family and my good husband, good dad, good friend, 
that aside, I would say the next thing I would do on the airplane is say, well, I was classically trained as a physical therapist, but I'm really a coach. And what we, what I try to do is help people untangle the mess or the limiters of their performance, whether that's in sport or pain, or we're trying to help a kind of create a more robust society. Where are the pain points? Because my experience currently working where I've worked and the things I get to see in all the dirty laundry has given me a really unique perspective on where people have a hard time feeling durable and feeling good. Very great answer. Now, you originally came over from Germany to the United States. What was your sort of upbringing like? How did that kind of lead you into becoming so interested in movement patterns, mechanics, and things like that? How did that shape you? I grew up in a single child of a single working mother. My mother was a professor of psychology. And so I sat in the back of a lot of her lectures, learning a little bit too much too much awareness too soon about processes, memory, learning behavior. Mm. I learned early on about myself that I was really interested in pattern recognition. So I didn't use that word per se, but what I really under, yeah. needed to understand was I needed to understand how things connected. I needed to understand the relationships between things if I was going to understand the thing. And so that was a way of really understanding learning. So you know, I was interested if I learned a new skill, how did that school skill connect to a whole bunch of other skills? How did that skill, how was it recursive? How did it iterate on the things I already knew? And growing up in Europe, I was exposed to lots of sports. And what I'll say, I think about my growing up, you know, kayaking and skiing and playing footy is that we really valued the best athlete in our group as the kid who could do the most skills, the kid who could pick up the new skill the fastest. And for me, I think that was really, I think, important because I didn't come up in a sort of very traditional strength and conditioning society. I used to kid around with my mom. You know, I was like, mom, if I had a little classical ballet or some Olympic lifting, I could have made something of myself, you know? And she's like, well, we were poor and I did the best I could. I was like, hang on, mom, just mm -hmm. kidding. But I didn't have a lot of formal movement training. What I was, was exposed to a lot of good coaching at a high level. I remember being a young kid in a ski racing camp taught by Andre Arnold, who had won the World Cup. And that kind of way he was thinking and the technicality and explaining the whole to the parts in those relationships really spoke to me. And I remember thinking, like, this is how I'd like to learn. So I have this very technical experience and really worshiping the generalist and myself identifying as generalist. I don't know if I was very talented at any one of those sports, but good success. But really the thing is that I was really interested in all of the sports and playing and being competent across this domain. So what I think is interesting is that because I didn't have this kind of classical strength and conditioning model, I remember coming to the United States when I was a freshman in high school and deciding I was going to play American football. Had never played American football, didn't know anything about it really. But my mom was like, you'll meet some kids. I think you'll like it. Your dad was a college quarterback. And I had to go in and do some testing for some lifts for the freshman team. And because I came in a little late, I didn't do all the, the testing. But I was able to front squat more than I was able to back squat. And of course, I mean, I, I'm sure it was like 20 kilos, whatever. I was a 14-year-old. But the idea here is that my – 
my capacities of play showed up in my ability to learn a new skill and to perform that skill. And it wasn't based on a little bit of what we've obsessed about now in strength and conditioning, which is power wattage, gym culture, how much time we're in the gym. And we've forgotten necessarily because of that, why we're training in the first place to make better athletes so hmm. that an athlete or a person can do their job or be more useful to the team or however we define that. So I think it was really important for me that I didn't get caught up in the minutiae of the materiel of training. I was in, caught up in the actual training itself. And now we see that people have literally lost that narrative a little bit in terms of what is essential and why are we training and what's the training for? How do we express that besides having abs in the gym for Instagram? It's very confusing for people. I mean, do you think that's why that you've become so successful, that you had that kind of oversight of such a wide range of sports, you know, that you've, I mean, you've worked with some elite athletes, but you also work with a lot of like normal people as well. And that you, you also have the interest from a different side of mechanics. You know, how do we get to the point of understanding our movements enough to, to get to that point? Because, you know, with our current treatment modalities, it's, oh, it's buggered. Okay, I'll go get surgery and I'll fix it. How do you start encouraging people to understand that, that they should come to somebody like you to do pre, you know, to do prehab rather than rehab? Whew. First of all, I'll say that... <clears throat> the older I get, I'm turning 50 this year. Um, the experiences that I've had working with national teams and Olympians and, you know, seen a lot of dirty laundry. Um, it's all about behavior change. So I'm going to leave here today. I'm wearing my, uh, Cal Berkeley coaching outfit. I'm going to go over and watch the women's water polo team who I get to work with have their first, uh, season of the game, first season of the game of the season. And mm -hmm. so much of what I do we don't need high level micro technical aspects with these incredible athletes. My job is to be able to come in and support the staff and the athletes so that they can go play more effectively. And it turns out the greatest limiter for that is all behavior change. Looking at if we have all of this information available to us, when and where are we going to deploy that information and what's essential? I think one of the things that you, you know, put your hand or your finger on, which is something that I think is really important to me is one of my coaching senseis, my, my, one of my mentors was a coach named Mike Bergner, who's an Olympic lifting coach. And I was able to watch him coach a room full of a beginner adults in Olympic lifting. And then that evening coach Olympians and the next day go coach high school kids and the essentials of lifting. And what was really mind blowing about that was that I could see his thinking. I could see the progression from raw beginner, zero training age, to an adult who has some training experience, to very specialized, how am I going to meet the needs? But you could see the through narrative of why he chose these skills, how skills built, and how they regressed and progressed. And I remember thinking to myself consciously, wow, I need to become a lot more competent to understand how all of these tools and behaviors fit together. What is the essential behavior that we can continue to build? And more importantly, where we are right now, and the thing I'm kind of obsessed with is taking what we think is good practices 
and spin them backwards and try to transform society with them. So I think sometimes we come back to that original idea. Why, why, why am I even competent in my job? I really like to see patterns and I need to see how things relate. So it's easy to go down a rabbit hole and become a, you know, a specialist or a, you know, a devotee of a certain thing. But ultimately the goal is X let's get you out of pain. Great. What are the tools available to us and how do those tools emanate from restoring range of motion, managing tissue physiology, getting you to be less stressed and feel more less safe or more safe in your environment, more slept. How do, oh, and by the way, those are the same tools we're going to talk about if you want to go win a world championship. So that's the thing I think I'm really continuing to struggle with and innovate on or iterate on. How do we start and where do we start with some kind of aspect of society so that we can end up with who ultimately is the best learner, has the best coaching, has the best genetics, not who was able to manage all the dysfunction in their life the best to accidentally win, right? That's, mm -hmm. I want to reproduce high performance so that people can live their lives the way they want, pain-free or self-actualizing and, and not have those choices taken away from them. So how do you start with, a, say, a client or a, like somebody who's mm. brand new to it or, you know, maybe, you know, 40 plus, et cetera? You know, like, because you said in the Joe Rogan podcast, we don't know the software of our own bodies. We're not given, like, the, the manual to use. So how do we start then understanding, like, our knees don't need to be dodgy. We don't need to have a pain in our back. We can actually be fit and healthy and able to walk up a flight of stairs. Yeah, we can deadlift a heavy load but we shouldn't be out of breath going up a flight of stairs. How, you know, because you've talked about we should be living to 100, robust, anti-fragile, you know, just being able to live life. How, how do you start getting somebody into that understanding that they can be healthy and fit? They don't disintegrate as the older. Yeah, you know, it's easier for me now as a coach, when someone comes to me, I have less issues of buy-in, right? People are like, I'm coming to you. You know, I know what your experience is, but ultimately, you know, keep in mind that I'll quote my wife here. My wife, Juliet, our CEO thinks I'm probably just an average physio. She's like, you're probably just average your skills. <laughs> you know, she gives me a wink. She's like, but you're really, really good at giving people permission to move and to own their own process and experience like mm. that. And that piece of it, I think I am decent at. So when someone comes in, ultimately remember as a coach, you're looking through lots of plates of glass at the person. And each one of those plates of glass you're looking through each window is a filter, health, metabolic conditioning, you know, being less gross, body composition, strength. What's the goal? What, and people will come for a lot of different reasons, right? They're afraid. Um, they're tired of knee hurting. They can't do the, occupy their role in society or their job. Can't do their sport. Um, starting to realize that just what was working for them and has worked for them their whole lives don't. So it doesn't work all of a sudden. So ultimately, we want people to come in with whatever is important to them. But we're still going to squat today because this is what training looks like. So I think sometimes it's easy, it's easier to reframe the basics and essentials when we're working with someone in terms of, hey, I know you want to get body composition under control or you want to have less pain, but this is what we're going to do. We're going to do the body composition, less knee pain squat. 
oh, you really want to go win the world championships? Great. We're going to do the win the world championship squat. And what you can start to see is that underneath there is a first conversation of what is essential in my training beliefs? What positions, what skills do I think a person should have? And then I can start layering up and layering down to meet one of those specific needs, or I can then after this one hour, have the next conversation. And ultimately, if you're a physician, imagine if you got to spend three to five hours a week with a patient. That would be a revolution in healthcare. That is what we call hyperlocality. That is the potential of a coach or an instructor or a trainer working individually with a single person. We have three to five contact hours to reflect unconditional positive regard, to ch shift loci of control, to begin instruction about nutrition and sleep and what's going on. And simultaneously, it's all in the language of strength and conditioning. The strength and conditioning, the actual fitnessing, if you want to use that, if it's not strength and conditioning, you're just trying to you know burn calories and have fun in the gym, fine. But that is the seed kernel from which we can actually begin to transform society and have more nuanced conversations about mm -hmm. how did you deal when the metabolic stress got really gnarly on the assault bike? How did you deal with that psychoemotionally? How did that change your breathing? How does that breathe? I mean, you can certainly see that this gives us a context to be able to untangle. Hey, I see you don't have any hip extension. Let's see if we can improve that with our training. How do we, instead of just arguing about physiology, did I put another kilo on the bar for this bench press? That doesn't change anything, right? That's a sort of a, a temporary goal. And if your goal is to bench in the world, awesome. But ultimately, what we're looking at is, are you exposing your tissues? How do we have a conversation about your environment? Mm -hmm. How do we have a conversation about you coming to know yourself? I have a young Olympic lifter who is a national title holder. She's going to go to the Worlds this year. She's 16. She's an incredible athlete. And she is discovering that Olympic lifting is a really harsh partner that she's sore that you know it doesn't go right sometimes that you know she has to take care of herself and she has to do all of these things in order to lift these heavy weights over and over and over again and what she's coming to realize is that olympic lifting is the vehicle by which she's coming to understand herself so i think that's what we could begin to view strength conditioning or training physical training as as a vehicle to understand ourselves and a context by which we can then say hey let's talk about nutrition Let's talk about sleep. Why? Because those things impact our performance and our body composition and our power and all those things. So do you think this is sort of down then to a problem with sort of poor understanding of why you were doing certain movement patterns? You know, so people think I'm squatting for power where they're squatting more for their hip hinge ability or, you know, they're kind of, they're not understanding why they're doing certain mechanics. So they then load up the bar with far too much weight and then they don't know when their own mechanics breaks down or their hip hinging it becomes a bat wink in the squat or, you know, those sorts of things. Is it, you know, do we not understand like just basically the movement patterns we should be using and just the, how we should be able to move up and down in 3d, et cetera, before we start adding weight to the bar? Do we need a beginner's course again? <laughs> I think we can always beginner's course. You know, I, have some of the strongest friends in the world and they say things like, Oh, I just started deadlifting for the first time like two weeks ago. I'm like, you pull 800, but you just started to understand deadlifting. Like, okay, that's, that's un unusual. 
<laughs> the idea here is, you know, ultimately we have done a poor job in society of creating, let's call them movement vital signs or physical vital signs. Our model has been pain, no pain, look good naked or not, high level performance, right? That's it. And I think it's confusing. The internet is very confusing because if, you know, we're seeing a whole bunch of exercises just blah, vomited out about pain, you know, and people are limping around, you know, with the got back pain, like try these three things, pew, pew, pew. What the problem is we're now in an attention economy. We don't understand what's essential. So there's no good exercise or bad exercise, but there are certain positions and shapes that lend themselves to a lot more transferability. Mm -hmm. And that really means that I can begin to have a little bit more nuanced conversation about the choices that I'm making as a coach or an instructor. I'm looking for transfer. Does this transfer to a specific thing? And again, as long as it's about pain or no pain, that's very confusing. The physical therapists have muddied the water even more. There's a whole bunch of physios who just said things like, it doesn't matter how you move because it doesn't cause pain or injury. And I'm like, well, we all know that, you know, and, but that doesn't say why we use these techniques. These techniques transfer more effectively. They maintain physiologic capacity. That's why we choose these things. And I think as long as we aren't always looking at that spectrum of does this get me to the Olympics? Can I continue to build on these skills? Then what we see is these really weird artifacts of, of coaching, artifacts of intellectualism, where we end up having really, look, rope, swinging a rope for like rope flow, like David Weck, I love that. I use it every day. I swing a heavy rope and it recaptures all the rotation in my wrists and elbows. I get, I'm a paddler. I love to mountain bike. It makes me feel connected really well in a freaky way before I go paddle. So I can do all this elaborate movement stuff or wait for it. I can just spin this rope around for five minutes, play and touch all of these shapes, do all the PNF patterns, get all my rotation, side bending, priming in. I don't think I need to turn the rope flow into an exercise or an ethos or an identity for me personally. But what we see is that people take these tools and then make them about a specific thing. And if you happen to be genetically born with abs, you're like the ab, you know, comes from the rope flow. It's, we end up confusing the basics with the, with what's, what's going on. So to your point, We've lost why we're training. And sometimes one of the things we try to do is help people, you know, over and over again, understand what is essentialism for the movement. And the body, the shoulder does only a few amount of things. It does infinite variability between those things, but the arm goes out in front in all those positions. The arm goes overhead in all the variations. The arm goes out to the side in all those variations and it goes behind you. And ultimately, what we can start to see is, do you have access to your native physiology in those positions? If not, training can be one of those tools that reinforces that. So is it just about tissue exposure? Sure, maybe. Is it just about maintenance of shapes because you're a professional surfer and I want you to have all your interrotation when you're taking off? Sure, it could be that. But if we're ultimately trying to drive and assess everyone's program, 
there's two things we should look at. One is native range of motion. It's unequivocal. It's objective. If I'm doing your program and I start to lose massive amounts of range of motion or movement choice or capacity, for me, that's a less effective program. What I'm looking at is I should be able to maintain, I should be able to drop into anyone's program and at least do the movements. The second thing is, does this improve my biomotor output? So ultimately, the second objective that we wrap our heads around is, did you go faster? Were you more efficient? What was the economy? Did you generate more watts? And that is the, the gold standard test because what we see is that there's a whole lot of internet exercising that doesn't answer those two questions, doesn't maintain my range of motion. Or when I test you, I see that you're deficient because of your program. And that may be because you're an elite cyclist. That's okay. That's the trade-off. You're going to be an elite cyclist. You're going to look like an elite cyclist. But if you're telling me your GPP sports preparation training program isn't looking at positions and managing that, then when your athletes aren't in those shapes, don't be surprised with what happens. And simultaneously, can I continue to load, scale, speed that? And what you'll see is that the answer is no. And so when we come into understanding the foundations of across platforms, we come back to back squat, front squat, kettlebell swing, strict press, bench, deadlift, right? Pull up. They look like the universal strength and conditioning languages Hmm. that are across every country on the planet. I've been to a lot of countries. I've been to 35 different countries. It's not a lot. I'm getting there. But everyone knows what a push-up is. Everyone knows what a deadlift is. And when I'm in countries where we don't speak the same language, we always speak front squat. So was this where... I have it written down. What is it? It was a, in Tim Ferriss's book. You mentioned how athletes should be able to power clean, backflip, run marathons, do CrossFit, etc. Does that where this comes from? It's like there's these are there physical benchmarks you think all athletes should do? You mm. know, do we take it basics to hip hinge? Rot, you know, rotate to certain degrees. You know, just sit down and get off the floor without having to put your hands down. Or do we, you know, how far in into this do we need to go before we have like a, a range of characteristics that all people should be able to do before they get so, into sports? It's a real question around how can we? So let's let's look at what we've traditionally done. If we look at just the United States and youth sports, kids can do none of those things, but they can play soccer, mm-hmm. right? They can play. So. The question then is, what's important? And the most important thing is that people play. They learn skills best when they play. We learn how to interact and win and lose when we play and win and lose. We learn how to work in a team. We, we get to the self-discovery through play. And play in the United States has become synonymous with sport, right? That We can say those two things. We have never put movement competency in front. But what we see is that kids who are happen to be competent movers, maybe had some gymnastics instruction, something like that, they tend to be able to pick up new skills more quickly, create more movement solutions for themselves, potentially, and they may be more durable, being able to handle more in volume, et cetera, et cetera. One of the reasons to have a strength program and again, appropriate for the age and for the skill set is that you're running a parallel diagnostic tool all the time. Your range of motion and skill is a 
finite, changeable, malleable resource. Um, you know, Greg Cook says, you know, you're you're always pressing save on a Word document that's everly changing. Your range of motion is constantly in flux. Okay, and so one of the reasons we ultimately want all our position coaches, sports coaches to understand what they're seeing. My athlete is behaving this way in the water. She is missing internal rotation on her shoulder. I then can go over here, improve or restore her range of motion, give her some movements to maintain it, and then put her back in the pool. That's very difficult to do. And what we saw was a whole host of problems result from that inability of the coach to minister to the needs of their athletes in real time. We saw an epidemic and are continuing to see an epidemic of lower extremity injuries in soccer players, especially in women who are tearing their ACLs at six to eight times the rate of men. We've seen the ACL rates skyrocket after the pandemic. So what I'll say is what we're currently doing isn't working. What we're currently doing is putting a bunch of kids into play and then adding crazy volume, crazy intensity, crazy mm -hmm. year-round sport. So one of the things that FIFA did was say, okay, hang on a second. This is a real problem for existentially for our culture. Let's create a really simple jump safety mechanics program. And what they found was that people who did that, I think it took 15 minutes, like three times a week, 15, 20 minutes, three times a week, very simple, simple hopping drills. They saw a massive reduction in lower extremity injuries. Even if you did the program poorly, the exposure alone did it which tells us something about having a parallel strength conditioning coordination program running in tandem because it allows us quickly to understand what we're seeing at speed and under complexity in very, very simple conditions. A squat is a really simple thing to understand when you watch someone squat. Watching someone cut and run and jump and plant is much more difficult to understand, especially when we're more interested in how does that person pass the ball to, and is worried about the tactics of the game. So we're either going to ask these coaches who are really good at tactics and actual play to become movement experts simultaneously and fix it doesn't happen. And it hasn't happened. It won't continue to happen. So we better have a parallel program, a processing program, which helps us understand what's happening in real time. That's called the gym. That's what strength and conditioning is about. So how would you break down a sort of standard training program then? Would it be sort of majority sports like specific and then you would look at sort of general physical preparedness i think you, i think hmm. gdp you called it and then would you have also like sports preparation how would you incorporate like warm-ups uh cool downs would it be kind of a site like you were saying the gym would be to the side and then the majority would be sports led with some rehab how would you sort of set up a program for somebody that's maybe not got a coach or you know, what percentages or breakdown are you looking at? The most important thing you can do is play your sport, right? That's, that's the thing you need. You don't play your sport enough. You can't play your sport enough. You need more time playing your sport, period. Comma. We know that <laughs> that is not the way to win a world championship. Ultimately you're going to have to become stronger and you're not be able to do that in your sport. You're going to become faster or more skilled. We can support those facilities, the coordination in the gym. The writer and coach Franz Bosch, if anyone is not familiar with Franz Bosch, I highly recommend you check out Bosch Sporting Systems. His books, Anatomy of Agility, are excellent around movement, understanding, agility running, I think is his last one. 
and uh, anatomy of agility. And one of the things you'll see is he makes really the case that a lot of what we're doing when we're training is improving coordination. We don't talk about that. We talk about physiology. Did you get stronger? Do you more powerful? How was your velocity? How was your volume? We don't talk about the coordination of the system of teaching those skills again. So suddenly if we're building in these programs, we're looking at how can I get a coach, an athlete to be more coachable by her coach? That really is the ultimate goal so that that athlete can perform more work. And in this case of this university where I'm coaching, assistant coaching, I don't think this team is outworking the other teams. I think that's some old, you know, trope from the 1980s where we were like, oh, we'll just outwork the competition. Really? You think you're going to outwork the competition? Let's go into any premier soccer, rugby, you know, American football, whatever you think. No one is working harder than anyone else. That ship has sailed. What we see now is the people who are able to manage that training volume and have the best adaptation response and have the greatest set of skills, which allows them to learn and apply those movement options and choices to novel mm. solutions. That's how you win games. So what you're really describing with GPP, sports preparation, sports specific training is a continuum that is really useful for people to understand. On one side, we'll call it fitness. Let's put Zumba over there, fitnessing. Zumba is awesome. If you haven't done a Zumba class, you're an elite coach, you need to go take a Zumba class. You'll giggle, you'll laugh, everyone feels good. It's mirror neurons, you dance around, you learn rhythm, it's awesome. It is not fitness. That was never its intention. The intention was to dance and, and transform psycho-emotional communities, right? To, to feel like I belong to a group. Mm. We're selling that as transformation towards body composition. Is dancing really the best way to get body composition changes? No, that's, let me introduce you to vegetables and meat. <laughs> Suddenly, we have this idea of fitnessing, so boot camp. So people are like, hey, I need to change my body composition, so I'll just do a bunch of work. That's mm -hmm. boot camp. And if you're not doing anything and you do something, that's gonna, you're going to see some changes. But we know that that stops for a while. Then we have programs like CrossFit initially, which was a good GPP program, asking people to develop basic competencies, learn how to lift weights and control their body in space, GPP, then we move into something that looks like sports preparation training, which means that the skills I'm teaching better transfer to learning new skills or, or not interfere or create pattern interference with the sport that the person is actually doing. So sports preparation training maybe is off-season or is geared towards transferability. So I'm looking more carefully at range of motion and skills and teaching much more to the highest sort of expression of the movement, which I would do with GPP, which I would do with, with my physio. Again, I just, I'm always teaching towards what I think is the best expression of the movement to our, our limits of our understanding. And then we have sports preparation training or sports specific training and sports specific training is geared at one thing. We're in season and are you playing your sport better? And the only goal right now is not to see how much weight and wattage you can put in the barbell. It's how fast you can push the bobsled. It's yeah. how, fast you can get to the ball. Does it allow you to handle more volume and play better? Yes or no? One or zero. And then when we come out of season, we can change gears and we can start to rebuild capacities and things. But the tip of that spear is only aimed at, did this make you better at your sport? And I think that continuum very much confuses people. Where does pain fall in there? Who owns that? You know, is it fitnessing or am I taking, trying to make a world champion bobsledder, an Olympic medalist better 
for another four years. Those are different conversations. And I need to know what your goals are. It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy, so how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and level up. And how much of a sort of emphasis on problem analysis do you give to the client? You know, how do you train them to look at their own mechanics, their own movement patterns and start mm. identifying, you know, like it's almost like seeing it from above. You know, you start noticing, oh, okay, I bat wink when I go too low here. I need to work on this, or I feel off when I'm maybe rotating at the the you know when I'm throwing a baseball or something like that. How how do you start getting people to understand their own movement, or is that something a coach really needs to do because you're seeing mm. the whole athlete? I think we have confused hard, hard work and gnarly physiology for success, right? As long as I'm burning, you know, we, I'm, I'm getting better, right? I'm brutally sore from that workout. Um, what we try to do is have people feel what's going on early on. They need lots of knowledge of results. And then we start to pull those knowledge of results back. This is basic motor learning, movement learning theory. We do lots of block practice and we move into random practice as a really cursory overview of this. We, for example, when we teach squatting, hinging, pulling, jumping, stepping, we come back to a basic foot pattern pressure position so that ultimately when we're moving or having someone learn a new skill, they have a feeling of what they should be feeling and it's not always external feedback. If I do a movement and I turn and you tell me what to fix and I can't feel or I'm not aware, then I have a, a dependency where I'm going to look to you and say, was that good? Was that a good bench? I can't Love tell it. I blacked out. Yeah. Right? So ultimately, we need to teach people to what the points of performance are. That might be a language you're comfortable with. Or ultimately, what is that supposed to feel like? And when you stop being able to perform those things that we agreed on, We've exceeded your capacity to maintain that position. Hmm. So let me blow everyone's mind here. Ultimately, what we're doing when we go into the gym is we're identifying key positions that we value. That's it. And then we're going to train and challenge the person's ability to maintain that position. We may do it with load. We may do it with speed. We may do it with metabolic demand. We may do it with cardiorespiratory demand. We may do it with competition. But ultimately, you know, front squat a heavy five by five and let me know how you feel in the middle. Like it's death. You can't breathe. Your legs are burned. Do a 20 rep squat. Do a 20 swings in a row. Ultimately, I would like to say your skills should be getting better through the sets. <laughs> You're practicing, <laughs> practicing, practicing, practicing. You shouldn't just see a natural decay in technique because it gets so heavy. Ultimately, the load that I'm using may just be one way that I'm challenging your ability to maintain that position. 
I think CrossFit got something right, for example, when they made people do basic movements under enormous metabolic and physiologic cardiorespiratory demand. That's what happens in actual sports. You need to be able to decelerate when your heart rate is high. I'm not just talking about high intensity exercise burning. I'm saying if I put you on the bike and make you push six or 700 watts on the assault bike or just 400 watts on a big gear on, on like a watt bike like the All Blacks do, I should then be able to have you come over and strict press without going into crazy banana back. And it turns out your technique may be highly limited because you don't have a very robust movement system that allows you to have a high heart rate, high cardiorespiratory rate, respiration rate, and perform basic movements. So one of the things we see suddenly is that people fall apart when their heart rates are high, mm -hmm. right? And that for us is a sign that yes, you may be able to handle this large load, this 200 kilo deadlift, but if I give you a 200, 100 kilo deadlift and your heart rate is 190 and you don't know how to organize or sequence or have good technique or even feel what's going on, I have incomplete training stimulus. If my goal is to do what? Have you be better prepared to snowboard at the bottom of a run or be able to you know, make a decision when you're running a girl down and have it to tackle? So ultimately... What we're doing with position is challenging that native position, that root position that we've decided on. I mean, there aren't that many things. Again, your arm goes over your head. It goes behind you. It goes out to the side. It goes up in front. Bench press, snatch, overhead press, yeah. dip. Those are the fundamentals. And then how I want to challenge those fundamentals is up to the coach and up to the goals of the athlete. And it works because that was something I was really interested in about was like how I would start in jujitsu and I'd be mm. tearing through people. 20 30 minutes in i was breathing out my arse i was sweating <laughs> i was all over the place and i was like how do you how do you get that level of stimuli in so you can actually work when you, you know like how to pre-exhaust yourself so that you you don't fall back to like poor motor mechanics you don't start mm. doing really stupid to our things. learning to our practice positions mm. that's right you know if the class is an hour long Believe it or not, you may not be able to take an hour of jujitsu. <laughs> you know what oh, I mean? Your technique starts to fall apart. Uh, Just like if I said, hey, I'm going to throw you in with my high school girls, you might not be able to handle the volume that they can handle given that they've been training with me for a year, right? They, they are spun up and know what to do and can maintain their positions. So some of this is exposure. And Greg Glassman, the founder of CrossFit, a long time ago said, you fail at the margins of your experience. So again the old model. And if we put 15 years ago, I opened our gym, first gym in 2005. So that was when we opened our gym in the city, San Francisco. And in 2005, I don't know if anyone can remember back there, but there was no Twitter. There's no Instagram. There's no Gmail. It didn't exist. All that stuff didn't exist. What we found also is that people weren't very strong and they weren't very skilled and they weren't very fit. They weren't. They were mm -hmm. riding their bike and then maybe doing some cable crossovers. Some people in the Russian iron pit gyms were deadlifting and benching and doing those things, right? If you fell into a track and field program or you happen to be in a rugby program or someplace where we start to see real significant training ages and classical strength and conditioning applied to those athletes, you were very lucky. But what we saw was that people weren't very fit. And so we got them 
bitter, whatever that meant, more metabolic, we could handle higher lactates in rowing and running and jumping and doing these basic things. We got them basically a little bit stronger. You've never deadlifted. Now you deadlift 300. That's going to change your life, right? You've never front squatted. Now you can front squat 60 kilos for a set of five. That's going to change your life. What we see though, is that has model doesn't work anymore. We can't just say, get all the beginner gains and say a bigger engine solves the problems, right? People love to say strength is never a weakness. I'm like, okay, you can't touch your shoes and you can't sprint anymore. That's a weakness. You have completely become a specialist. Dude, it's super cool to squat and bench like that. I think that's super cool. But let's not also say this is enough. Or let's say that this is the way. We can say, what tools got you to that 600 fastest? How can I steal those tools? But someone like Pavel a long time ago, even Paulkin was saying, hey, I think you're strong enough. Double bodyweight back squat, probably strong enough to do whatever you want to do in any sport, any time. So maybe we don't need to spend our time working on improving your squat because it didn't make your sport better. Because this sort of ties in with one of my favorite quotes. I think you said it was, where is it? Patterns repeated in training will reveal themselves at gain time or movements of consequence. And is that what you notice is that athletes are sort of like loading in shitty quality reps that they're not really understanding what they're doing. They're just, okay, I'm squatting, I'm benching. It's just accepted to be done. They're not even going into a deeper level like you're discussing. They're not even preparing for the sport. They're just taking limited experience. Remember, everyone everyone comes from somewhere. Everyone's doing – everyone has some movement history, coaching lineage. So when people are just – moving, that's saying that the physiology rules sport. And sometimes it does. But if that was the case, I would all I would need is an assault bike and a deadlift bar, right? Or blood BFR cuffs. I would just I would just give you huge muscles and an insane work capacity on a spin bike. And I'd be like, all right, let's go win some world records. And let's go win a world championship. And what we know is that doesn't. So where is the disconnect between movement as skill and I do a sport and I need to be skilled in my sport? Where's that disconnect? How many free throws does that basketball tear player take over and over and over repetition so that they don't have to worry about it when it's they're tired, when it's stressful, right? It's an automatic thing. Why aren't we applying that level of motor learning and practice into the gym? Because we still worship the physiology right? As long as I could just do more work, it's fine. And that is not the case. We're not seeing that we are, have an opportunity to influence movement learning and movement skill in the gym by refining physiology and understanding that that's also a diagnostic tool in the real time. So that if we come in and all of a sudden you can't break 90 degrees in your air squat, I'm like, hmm, what's going on with that? Let's load it. Let's turn the feet out. Let's get to some arbitrary depth. Let's like, no, 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 no. We want to understand that we're using this strength and conditioning platform to make sense of what's going on with my Olympic sprinters. That's what we're doing currently. Because I remember you said uh, in another interview, was it um, don't be heroic, be consistent. How how do you start making this into like a system, uh, like a way of life? You know, like, are you looking at like, cross training you know like sports specific you know how how do we build this in terms of like sleep 
nutrition, diet. Because people think, oh, I go to the gym, I'm fit and healthy, but they can't walk up a flight of stairs. You know, they're out of breath, putting the bins out, but they can maybe like, you know, twat a baseball over a great distance. How do we become 3D fit rather than mm. just that like being that. narrow channel? So if I have a critique of becoming a supple leopard, which is 10 years old in April, what I would say is there wasn't room in that book to talk about what you should do in your day-to-day life. <laughs> what do I do? And what you just described is the same continuation of, we think this is normative hip flexion. This is how much your knee should be able to come to your chest. This is what every doctor says you should be able to do, every chiro, every surgeon. Knee moves this much, joint moves this much. So if you don't do that, what's wrong with you? Why is that? We can become curious. It's not good or bad. We just saw that, you know, something's up with you. You can't do what we think you should be able to do. More importantly, not passively, but in the context of an actual movement, like a squat, like a big step up, something like that, right? We have these objective measures, and those things are based on range of motion of your body expressed in movements like the push-up, like a hip hinge. Okay. We can then take those objective measures and say, well, hey, we actually have some physiologic objective measures that people are comfortable with. Heart rate, resting heart rate. They know what their temperature is. They know what decent blood pressure is. So what we've done is we started to create minimums for people. What's good blood pressure? Well, it's not 120 over 80. 120 over 80 is just average blood pressure, right? Athlete blood pressure is much lower than that. But 120 over 80 gives me a, a warning mark to say, hey, I should probably pay attention to this, right? It's not emergent. I'm not going to die with 120 over 80, but I can be moving if I start to go above and below that. Well, let's apply some objective measures to our lifestyle. Okay. Now we can begin to say, this is what we think are really good practices applied consistently over long periods of time, make the best performance of our athletes. And oh, turns out we can also see that your blood panel is better and your readiness is better and your resting heart rate and you don't look like, you know, a melted candle. Sleep, for example, we believe that seven hours of sleep is minimum for survivability. And if you have a child or you have to take a plane or work a, dead, a job with a deadline, you're going to give periods of time where you don't get that seven hours of sleep. That's okay. You're a human being. You're really robust. But we can start to say you're in pain. You want to change your body composition. You want to get stronger. You want to learn. You want to grow your body. Eight hours of sleep is our benchmark. And that means now suddenly there's a whole host of behaviors around that. If I'm going to get eight hours of actual sleep, I may need to be in bed for eight and a half to nine hours because that's typical to lose a half hour to an hour every night from just waking up, from rolling over, from the cat, batting your face, having to, having to use the loo, whatever it is. But now at least we've got an objective measure around something where we're like, yeah, I sleep great. Really? Because you smoked a bunch of weed last night and look at your aura ring. Doesn't, you didn't sleep great. You drank caffeine late in the day trying to get through. Oh, you had a beer with your friend, trash your sleep. You watched a movie, you were super stressed, whatever it is, you ate a big meal too late. What we're trying to do again is have people be able to make decisions about their life and what their goals are so that you can say, well, I'm going to binge this Netflix documentary all night long and I'm going to eat pizza because it's Friday and I love it. I don't, my job and my sport isn't on the line the next day. 
That's completely reasonable. I love that, comma, but we have an objective measure here. So we can start to say, we can't, we don't have to be like, I don't know why I got injured. Well, I can tell you because you've been sleep deprived. And we know that sleep deprivation even changes in a single hour of sleep. We see results in what? Increased injury. We see kids who are under more stress have higher injury rates around finals in university and in, co- in high school. That is unequivocal. So there are things then we can go backwards and say, well, we can begin to improve or manage that. And we can do that with hydration. We can do it with nutrition. We can do it with steps. We can do it with, I mean, you can start to roll this backwards and start to create a set of movement vital signs, physical vital signs that help people understand themselves. And again, I'm using sport as a model for understanding self. Hmm. So how would breathing play into this? I mean, because it's a sort of fundamental part of life. You know, everybody breathes, but you said that like... That's not true. People pant, people respirate. Yeah. I don't think they breathe. Let's use breathing as a verb, right? Because like that, because when that's what I was going to say was that you, you you said, well, we, we don't own a position unless we can breathe fundamentally in it. You know, people are sitting there saying, yeah, hey, I breathe fine. But, you know, <laughs> like in jiu-jitsu, second somebody's like on mount position, they hold their breath or, you know, they, they can't hold their breath like, well, um, 3D while they're doing to brace properly, like with a heavy squat or something like that. You know, we all think we breathe properly, but everybody's like, <sighs> you know, like that kind of creepy stalker breathing and things like that. How, do, how should we breathe and how have you noticed, like, how would you adapt people just to learn how to start breathing properly? There's so many good resources around this right now. Patrick McCone of Oxygen Advantage, I'd point you there. I would say go look at the Butreco breathing method, look at XPT, look at Mike, uh, the book Breathe, J.P. Nestor, look at Melissa Vranish's book. There are so many, Brian McKenzie, Shift, so many good resources here. If you want to deep dive, deep dive, enjoy yourself. <laughs> go to yoga class, understand what that's about. Fundamentally, Keep in mind that you, people will say things like, it doesn't matter how you breathe. I'm like, okay, under what conditions? Under low load, low speed, low stress, you're that efficient and effective. We know from anecdotal evidence, we'll call it anecdotal evidence, which is a small subjective experiment. Someone lost his lung and he still climbed to Everest. That's how amazing human beings are. Yeah. You can climb Everest with one lung. If a horse gets pneumonia, oftentimes that horse dies because the efficiency in that system is so fine. The tolerances are fine. Lose a lung, welcome to Everest. That's remarkable. But as soon as we start talking about overbreathing or the diseases of breathing, clinching your jaw, headaches, right? Overbreathing, gum disease, all of those mouth breathing suddenly you're starting to say, okay, well, those are downstream effects from what? Well, maybe something is less efficient or less effective. We've come to realize from the work of people like Brian McKenzie and uh, Leon Chaitao, et cetera, that oxygen really isn't the big master chemical we thought it was. It turns out CO2 is the master. And for everyone who knows this, forgive me, but for those who don't, the CO2 is the big driver of needing to breathe. And One of the things we know is that your body's ability to tolerate CO2, higher CO2 levels, circulating CO2 levels, means that you can actually take more oxygen off the hemoglobin. 
So if I haven't trained you to be really tolerant to that toxicity, gnarly, burny, I feel ugly, I'm getting wheezy feeling, and I haven't trained your brainstem to say that's okay, then you'll immediately stop your force production. You'll slow down. You'll pant and breathe and catch up. You have enough oxygen. Your oxygen saturation is still in the 90s, high 90s likely. Mm -hmm. But what we start to see is you start to become better and more tolerant at handling those higher CO2s. And then you can infinitely strip down oxygen into the 70s easily and still be winning the Tour de France. That's an incredible reservoir of performance. One of the easiest ways to think about breathing is that we use breathing for a lot of the metrics that we use. But we, one of the things we say is, well, let's get you into a position where you can take a bigger breath. So if you and I are looking at each other right now and I just say, hey, can you get into a different position where it allows you to take a bigger breath? You'll intuitively sit up, pull your rib cage down, head will come taller, pelvis will be more midline. I didn't tell you to do any of those things, but you can feel that you have more access to your physiology in that shape. So for us, I'm like, oh, look at that. We got your body into a position where you could take more air in, had more pliability in your rib cage, right? More, more compliance of the rib cage. You had better diaphragm excursion. Suddenly your trunk, you could create higher intra-abdominal pressures. You could ventilate more effectively. Holy moly, maybe that works on the bike too. Maybe that works <laughs> when I set up in my deadlift. And what we see is that I can give someone a feeling of saying, hey, is this a good position or bad position? I'm like, well, I don't think there's a good position or bad position. Try to ride in an aero position. Try to surf. Try to do, They're going to be in some wretched positions as a human being. Wretched as in not ideal, braced, midline, organized, perfect, can ventilate like a Pilates person. What we see is we can start to make decisions about the efficacy of our positioning by how well and functionally we can ventilate. So if we're over at specialized in the wind tunnel, working with the world's greatest cyclists in the wind tunnel there, there is a trade-off compromise between your ability to ventilate and develop wattage on the bike and how aero efficient you can be. So I can put you in a super aerodynamic position, but you can't breathe or pedal. <laughs> so it doesn't really work. At some point I have to start to trade off. Well, then I can start to say things like, well, are you breathing effectively in that position? What's going on with your tongue and the roof of your mouth? Do you have full hip flexion? Are there things that we can do with your body to improve and give you more choice so you can be more aero and still develop more power? One of the first things that anyone can do all the time is just breathe through your nose. What you'll see is if you have a little resistance, you will diaphragm has some resistance to pull against. It will yeah. function better. And all of a sudden we start to go down this rabbit hole of, oh, why can't I breathe through my nose? Well, I'm panting. Well, when I breathe through my nose, my CO2 tolerance goes up really fast and or my, my CO2 goes up really fast and become intolerant. I freaked out and breathe through my mouth. So what we're seeing is this cardiorespiratory system is highly trainable. And when we start looking at breathing efficiency, breathing mechanics, we see in radical improvements in VO2 max, in tidal volume and resting heart rate and ability to shift sugar burning, right? The glycogen way, way, way down the line. We can be way more running at much lower heart rates, which is more efficient. I mean, choose something. Eventually we're going to, you and I are going to talk about breathing efficiency and, and training. Even Lance Armstrong's coach, A.G. Ferrari, the crazy Italian Uber, you know, uh, coach, realize that he's like the legs are an 
a limited resource, the lungs are unlimited. So he made a conscious effort to shift everyone's work off the legs and onto the lungs. They started running at higher RPMs and challenging that that cardiorespiratory system instead of the muscular system. And what ended up happening with the help of some performance sensing drugs also, we saw improved performance and wattages on the bike. I love it. I love how there's just so many like levels that you can go into this and how small changes can bring such big impacts. And I can't believe it's almost been an hour. You know, it feels like <laughs> 10 minutes. I've got a bit starstruck as well. Like it's, but if for somebody, one of my questions used to always be, what would we take from this? But for somebody who's listening, who wants to become a supple leopard, become 3D fit, you know, healthy, what would you say to them? What would you want them to take from this interview and you going forward to be a better person, healthier person, fitter person? You know, you should have a model to address simple pain. I want to, I want to give everyone a clear message here. One is pain is not the barometer. Pain is not the barrier. Pain is not the marker. Pain is your body's request for change. It's trying to get your attention. And I want you to start treating pain, which is not a medical problem, like wattage, like poundage, like time. I want you to start using pain as an objective measure. I have pain here. It doesn't mean I'm crippled. It doesn't mean I'm injured. It's my body telling me something is up. I need you to pay attention. That's very subjective. Your pain may be very high and it doesn't register for you. Me, my experience with pain, my parents' experience with pain, my, I'm super sensitive. You touch me, it hurts. doesn't matter. That's, that's my own experience. But the resting state of the human being is pain-free. And what we end up happening is that we've been telling people it's a medical problem for a long time. And subsequently, we've left people to self-soothe however they want. They either ignore it or they stop doing the activity like walking or running or lifting or moving or jumping, or they use bourbon or they use THC or they use ibuprofen. And we just say, what tools? Look, it's not my problem. It's a medical problem. But since you're not going to go see a doctor for this, good luck on solving this yourself. We consider pain a medical problem for a couple of reasons. And these are easy for everyone to understand. You have a clear mechanism of injury. You stepped off the curb. There's a bone sticking out your leg. You heard a snap. Go see a doctor. That's a great reason too, right? My kid is limping around. Go get it checked out. You don't have to, you know, tough it out. You know, I had a daughter who broke her arm and it was late in the evening and she was skiing and we weren't sure it was a break. The next day, she's whimpering all through the night. We're like, let's go get a picture. It was broken, right? I mean, you know what I mean? It's okay to get your kids checked out. Yeah. Second is that you have something that looks like a fever, You've lost consciousness, dizziness, nausea, vomiting, something that feels like there's pathology going on. I have dengue fever. I have rabies. Go get checked out. The third thing, though, and this is crucial because it's usually the pain people are dealing with. If your back pain is so severe that you can't do your job or occupy your role on your family or pick up your kids or do your job on the team, you're now in what we call injury. This is injured in our definition. My knee hurts, but I can still run and do my job and play. That's not an injury. That's part of training. That's like, hey, I sucked at wattage today. My poundage, I got last in every sprint we did today. Coach is like, what's going on with you? You're like, I you know, got in a fight with my girlfriend and I drank some beers with my friends. Coach is like, okay, be better tomorrow. 
if I'm suddenly running and my knee hurts, we're like, I don't know, maybe it's knee cancer. Maybe we should get an MRI. Maybe we, you know, we completely lost our mind. So you should have a tool to begin to tug at what seems like a very complex knot, sleep, nutrition, hydration, myofascial work, breathing. There are tons of very effective techniques, isometrics that you can deploy to make yourself feel better, self-soothe. So that that's one thing I want you to understand, that you are responsible for your pain. Go get help when you can't. Otherwise, take a crack at it. And it's a lot easier than you think to make yourself feel better. That's really, really true. The other thing is I want you to walk more and sleep more. And ideally, you would spend 10 minutes a night taking care of your soft tissues. What's stiff? Get on the ground. If you just sat on the ground watching TV for the next hour, you'd be blown away at how much more mobile your hips would be because you'd long sit for a while, you'd side sit, you'd kneel, you'd cross-legged, and you would hit all of these positions, spending a ton of time in shapes that you would then have to get to use later on. So ultimately, again, I want you to have some benchmarks, some physical vital signs for helping you understand your movement and how well you're moving. I want you to have some behavioral vital signs to also say, hey, I didn't eat enough protein today. I can do better tomorrow, right? I should walk more today. I can do better tomorrow. I love that. I love how you, your brain works, and I can see why you've been so successful. Oh, it's, until we can get around to, I mean, I've got so many questions on societal pressures, you know, relationships. I'm so intrigued about you talking about how you had to make friends everywhere you went, and you became great at making friends. So I'm so interested in going to that. I've got ones on about like a, you know, making a mobility toolbox. So much more. But I'd love to have you on again. It's been an absolute joy and a pleasure. But for people who would love to follow you, you know, read your books, follow your your podcast and things like that. How can we keep in touch? How can we follow the journey of the incredible journey that you're on now? Oh, it is journey, and I'm, I have to say that I have so many incredible men and women who are my coaching colleagues who I'm just part of their ecosystem. They're like, we're just a big swarm of jellyfish trying to figure this out. So shout out to all my, uh, my cohort out there. Um, the easiest thing to do is to, you can start following the ready state and see how I think about this on, on social media. If you're interested in wondering what your movement vital signs are, go download our app. We have an incredible app called the ready state app. And in that app, there's a mobility test, which is really simple, really, really easy to interpret, and there's programming for it. So you can begin to start to establish, wow, what are my blind spots? I didn't even know I couldn't do that. In there also, we do 10, 20, and 30-minute daily mobility follow-alongs. If you have a ball and a roller, I can get you started feeling better. I lead them all. It's all based. You can say, hey, I have a ball, and I want to you know, make my hips feel better. Boom follow along. And we have a couple week membership right now. It's always there, but we want to bring you in and give you a taste of it. So having you understand that you should own your positional competency, you may not be great. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be getting better over the course of time. And if you start spending 10 minutes a day doing that, following you'd be shocked at how much better you feel. Right now we have a, a world champion paddler, a stand-up paddler who discovered our app. She was about to give up paddling. She's a world champion, two-time world champion. She's an amazing athlete, but her hips were so painful that she couldn't paddle and do her job anymore. Independently of us, she started testing her mobility, 
doing our hip spin up, doing a little targeted soft tissue work. Boom. Guess what? She's back slaying, no hip pain, managed that whole thing. She went from, I think I'm going to retire, probably need a hip replacement too. Oh, I was just stiff. And I didn't know what inputs to go in. So if that athlete can work this out, so can you, if your neck hurts, we have a, you have a body pain person. You can click on the neck. And again, what you've heard here is that there's a lot of ways into understanding your body. Is it pain? Is it a, hey, I want to program so I can feel better? Is it, you know, I, I want to test my range of motion? All of those things. And then I would point you at uh, pre-ordering or downloading or ordering our the new book, which is out April 8th or April 4th, called Built to Move, which is all of these vital signs that we've been talking about around behavior and how to fit them into your crazy busy life so that you don't have to throw anything away. So that if you just want to feel better, be more durable, or you're a fitness person, but you want to be able to help your aunt get off her blood pressure medicine, or you have an uncle or a cousin or a, a neighbor who you know is you know insulin sensitive or whatever it is, you can hand them this book and say, here's a place to start, and we can continue to build on this book as your fitness journey includes. So check out Built to Move. Well, that's it for another week. And thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.